0: We have been studying and looking at the synagogue discourse or sermon where Jesus admonished, uh, encouraged, and kind of corrected, is what admonished means just in case, a hungry crowd. Uh, and he, he corrected and admonished them to, to, this hungry crowd, to focus not on their stomachs like they were, because they were completely looking for a meal and all that. They, they were focused on their physical needs and stomachs. He basically admonishes them, don't focus on that. Focus on what is of the utmost importance, your souls, your spiritual needs. And uh, to kind of build this point here, Jesus then begins to present himself as three types of bread, uh, which can satisfy their souls, their spiritual needs. He calls himself the bread of God, the bread of life and The Living Bread. We have already looked at the first two and over the last couple of weeks, and this morning we're going to look at that third title, The Living Bread. But we're going to look at it briefly uh, because there's so much other stuff to look at too, but we'll kind of tie it all together toward the end. So, you guys ready to study the Word? Let's pray uh, before we get into the text. Father, we come to You humbly and we adore You. You are beautiful. As the song says, there is no one like you, Jesus. There is no one like the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's no one like the Godhead, unique and set apart and perfectly holy. And so we adore you. Lord, we uh, confess to you that we are feeble-minded and sinful. And uh, without your aid and help through the Third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, uh, we're not going to get anywhere. And so, Lord, we pray that you would forgive our sins this morning. We know that they are absorbed at the cross in Jesus. And uh, so we remember that this morning and receive that saving grace fresh and new today as your mercies are new every day. Lord, we thank you for who you are and all that you are and for what you've done in our lives the salvation that we have, the eternal life, the endless blessings, the joy, the fellowship of the saints, uh, the, the, word, the means of grace, the word of God, your scripture, uh, the sacraments, just uh, you've blessed us so richly. And I think one of the great expressions of your love for us is, is even here in this gathering as you assemble your people to love one another and to experience your grace. Uh, so, Lord, we do petition you, we supplicate, we, we ask that you would open our minds and our hearts to the truth today. Lord, that you would break any kind of boundaries and, and things that we have built into our lives that um, in some ways restrict us from hearing the truth and, and living it out. We pray that you would dash to pieces our the false areas of our theology, our understanding of you in Scripture, and and just renew us and sanctify us. There might be some here, one or two, or many, that don't even know Jesus in a saving way. They're like this crowd. They're only seeking Jesus for temporal blessings. We pray, Lord, that they would hear the message loud and clear, that they need the bread of life, the one who gives spiritual life, the only one, the only supply. So we pray that that would occur as well. But most of all, we ask and seek that you would be glorified here, God. I think, believe you can make that happen through, through this ministry here, that you can be glorified and receive glory. And so we pray for that most of all. That's our highest aim as believers is to bring you glory, and you are worthy of it. So we give you this time. We commit it to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys, verses 41 and 52 is where we're going to pick it up. This is pretty much where we left off last week. I'll read it for you again. So the Jews grumbled about him, speaking of Jesus there, because he said, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. 42, they said, is not this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know, how does he now say, I have come down from heaven? So after presenting himself as the the bread of life, the Jews began to grumble about something in particular that Jesus said here. They began to grumble about it. And before we even look at what they're grumbling about, I'd like to just Defined what Jews means there. You see the word Jews. Uh, Normally in the Gospel of John, when we see the word Jews capitalized like that, it refers to the religious leaders who were opposed to Jesus. The Sadducees and the Pharisees, the scribes, and that whole combination of religious leaders from the Sanhedrin and Temple. They were the ones that are usually called the Jews. Those are the opposers of Jesus, but But here it has a a far more general application. It it really refers to the Jewish people as a whole. This is is all the Jews, per se. This is is the nation of Israel that's represented here. And so what what we learn quickly here is that it it was the attitude of of the common Jews, of the people in general, that was now uh, turning sour toward Jesus, why? Because the religious leaders had some things figured out early on. The rest of the people did not. Now they're starting to figure these things out. But what they're realizing is that, wait a minute, this is our Messiah, but He's come to do some things that we don't want Him to do. His message conflicts with our Understanding of scripture, and he's he doesn't line up with our view and theology of Messiah. And so really what they're thinking now is they're starting to grumble about him, they're upset about him, the people as in general because he's not there meeting all their physical needs, and that is one of the distorted views they have of Messiah. That he's gonna always give them bread and always give them fish and always meet those physical needs. And so now you have with the Jewish people in general, they are beginning to grumble and turn against Jesus. In a way that has not yet happened in the nation, religious leaders started turning against him immediately. But now the Jews as a whole are doing that. Uh, They wanted those stomachs filled, they wanted to be delivered and freed from Roman oppression, and Jesus keeps preaching messages that don't line and square with that, and they, they got a problem now. Grumbled translates as complained. That's all it is. They were complaining. Maybe like a couple of people slip away and they begin to complain at the workplace about the boss or about something, about you know my paycheck or whatever. Uh, this word here, grumbled, is connected to Numbers chapter 11, verses 1 through 6, where the Israelites complained against God for giving them manna. You see, they were very hungry and God provided them with manna, the bread of heaven. But after a while, they got tired of the manna and they began to grumble and complain against God, or really against Moses and Aaron, who were the leaders. They came to Moses and said something of this nature back in Egypt, you know, back when they were slaves, because this is the point where they were just delivered out of there. But back in Egypt, you know, back in the slave days, we had fish, we had cucumbers, we had melons, we had leeks, which is a really gigantic onion. We had onions, we had garlic, And here now, all we have is this manna to look at. We had hometown buffet back in Egypt. And now we've got McDonald's. This is the complaint. All we have is this manna and it's just not enough. And they were grumbling and whining and, and really what they were doing is showing their ingratitude for God's supply. In a similar way, when we feel that god is not meeting some kind of physical need in our life don't we typically grumble well i tell you if he just comes through our grumbling might look a diff- little different but we do it too and because of this back then uh, the whining and the ingratitude it literally stoked the flames of god's wrath against his own people translation to tick them off big time So much so that he began to drop massive fireballs from heaven all the way around the camp on the edge of it and burned everything up around it. Like he encircled them with a ring of fire to show his awesome power and the fact that he was not pleased and satisfied or happy with their complaining and railing against him. It's interesting if you read that narrative in Numbers 11, you'll see that the Jews later named that place Tibera, which in Hebrew translates as burning. That's the place of burning. What, that it got burned up? No, that God's anger burned hotly against them, and He dropped fire to show them. Now, in a similar way, there's a parallel here. In a similar way, the Jews in the synagogue where Jesus is were now complaining against God for providing them with spiritual manna, the bread of life. You know, it was their way, this grumbling among each other, it was their way of of basically telling God, we didn't want manna back during the days of Moses and we don't want the bread of life now. We don't want Jesus. That's what they're conveying to the Lord here. We didn't want it then, we don't want it now. You'd think people would learn. We don't. When Jesus said, and here's where they began to grumble about Him, and this is what they were saying to one another, when He said, I am the bread that came down from heaven, there, this is where the people started grumbling. There were people in the crowd who actually knew that Jesus was from Galilee and that Jesus had Galilean parents. They, they knew His parents, Joseph and Mary. Well, He's the carpenter guy, and that's Mary. We, we know them. And, and they went throughout the synagogue quietly complaining. We, we know Jesus' parents. How does he now say, how does he now say he's from heaven? How, how can he say this? We, we know where he's from. We know his folks. Take note of the word now. This implies that Jesus had just given them new information, like he had never before told them where he is from, right? And we've been with him for a while, and now he says this? What is going on here? So the question becomes, is this true? Is this the first time that Jesus declared where he's from? No, not at all. During three previous occasions, Jesus clearly stated in front of many of these people, many of these people have been following him since the beginning, and he stated it in front of many others who were not there now, that he is from heaven. Matthew 7, 21, Matthew 10, 32 through 33, Matthew 12, 50. These represents times in, in his ministry and messages that he preached to these same people. He was not now saying he's from heaven. He'd been telling them all along he's from heaven. So what was going on here? Did the people that were there forget about Jesus' previous claims about heaven? No. You would remember that if somebody told you they're from heaven. You'd be thinking, weirdo, for a long time. No, they didn't forget. If they had forgotten, if this were true, then Caiaphas, the high priest, would not have been able to interview some of these same people and collect evidence from them to use against Jesus during his trial, Matthew twenty six, sixty three. Are you the son of God? Implication from heaven, you know? No, they didn't forget. They knew. Well, then what was the issue? What was the problem? It had to do with rejection, Jesus' teachings did not align with the Jews' warped view of salvation, so they rejected His testimony about Himself, where He's from, who He is. And they refused, absolutely refused, to submit to Him as Lord and Savior. That is what is going on here. This is not, we, I've never heard this before, this is strange, doesn't make any sense, it doesn't compute, they knew exactly what Jesus was saying about Himself. They'd been tracking with Him for a year. They did not want to believe what He was saying. They did not want to submit to Him. This is rejection. This is unbelief. This is rebellion. This is cosmic treason. In an effort to avoid exposing their blackened hearts and an ever increasing contempt for jesus which would what if discovered result in loss of benefits no more free bread No more fish, no more healings, right? Because Jesus was doing all of these things for these people. If they become exposed for who they actually are, and they didn't realize they were exposed because Jesus knows what's going on, but if they become exposed in kind of a public way, we could lose all the great things he's been doing for us. So what do they do? They attempt to conceal their blackened hearts, their real disposition and attitude toward Jesus by what? Quietly complaining among one another. And murmuring and mumbling, well, this, uh, this guy, he's, uh, he's from Gal- He's from Nazareth. That's, that's Keys. He's from the worst town. Somebody in here, this is a glorious town. No, I've been there. <laughs> I'm from Cedar Rapids. It's below Keys, believe me. They're trying to conceal it, and they're, and they're talking and murmuring and mumbling. But really, it's because they hate Jesus. But you know what? Their strategy to mumble quietly among themselves, it, it totally failed because Jesus heard them. He's got like bionic hearing. Do, 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 do. Right? They're mumbling over there in the corner. This can't be him or whatever. And he hears them. Plus, he knows what's in their hearts. Look at 43. This is terrible when you're complaining about somebody and then the person you're complaining about goes, Hey! You're like, I was talking about a different gym. I swear. No, you were talking about me. Okay, I'm sorry. Jesus says to them, do not grumble among yourselves. They're caught. And here's what's fascinating about his response here. Instead of answering their confusion, right, because they were... Trying to get their minds around how he's from heaven and from Joseph and Mary, they couldn't get their minds around that, but really it had to do with just ignorance and rebellion. But, but instead, of, instead of giving them an apologetic on the incarnation, well, let me, let me break down for you how this works. Instead of answering their confusion about the incarnation, he rebukes them. This is a harsh rebuke. Do not grumble. Basically what he's saying is stop complaining. Stop whining. Now, up to this point, why does does Jesus respond this way to him? Because this doesn't sound like friendly, all-loving Jesus. It is, but sometimes love has to be tough, right? But here's Jesus' rationale. Up to this point, he had provided these people with ample evidence showing who he is and why he came. He has been preaching to them for a year. He has performed innumerable miracles. He just fed them from a kid's bag lunch 15 20,000 people. He has given them all the evidence they need. But what happened with the constant giving of this evidence? It only served to harden their hearts. The same thing occurred with Pharaoh in Exodus 7 when God unleashed supernatural plagues on Egypt. After every one of these insane climate-changing miracles... What did Pharaoh do? He hardened his heart. What does it mean when you see the truth and you harden your heart? Basically, hardening your heart means you refuse to believe. No! Doesn't matter the evidence. It's right there in front of you. No! There is the hardening that is happening here in the synagogue just as it happened back in Exodus. Exodus. These people had seen Jesus' things and, and, and the miracles and heard him, but they refused to believe in, in the one who's performing the miracles, just as Pharaoh did. I have seen similar reactions from self claiming or proclaimed atheists. You know, those who, who do not believe in God and reject the idea that there is. A God and all of that, that, that all that that entails, they just completely, there's no way, it's impossible, there's no such thing. But so often when you interact with an atheist, someone who calls themselves an atheist, I usually start off by saying, you want evidence for God? Go look in the mirror, image bearer. Shut up. Okay. But here's typically what happens with an atheist. They say, give me proof that God exists and I'll believe in Him. Give me proof. But then when you... You, you make your points, and, and, and they're really, really good points. You're pointing to nature. You're, you're pointing to the, to, the, to the Word, you know. You're pointing to Jesus, and you make these great points. The atheist does not uphold his or her end of the deal, do they? No. No, they harden their hearts. You're not proving anything to me here with what you've been saying. And what do they do? They go right down the line and refute every one of your points. And then what do they do after that? They usually go around with their chests puffed up, all prideful and, and you know, boasting about how they dispelled once more the God myth and took out another Christian. Boy, I tell you, I had a guy I was debating one time and he sent the conversation, he tagged like 20 other atheists to it and said, look at this idiot. Next thing you know, I had 20 other ones on me. And I was like, where are the dumb Christians? Help me. They're like, I ain't touching that. They had wisdom. I was the dummy that got sucked in. I told a guy on Twitter the other day, and Twitter is not for this. I, can't, I got off Facebook to avoid this. But you put something on there, and then they're on you on Twitter, too. You can't. Social media has to go. And it can happen even at Instagram when you post a picture and put a comment. Well, that pizza's terrible. You need to go to me and Ed's. Shut up! It's pizza! I like it! Then again, why am I trying to tell everyone what kind of pizza I like? I'm the one with the problem. I have a conversation the other day with a guy on Twitter, and, and he's telling me, give me evidence, give me evidence, give me evidence. And, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm studying this stuff, Right? So I'm kind of being equipped differently. And I said to him, you know what? No amount of evidence that I could provide you with will convince you of anything. I could show you an infinite amount of evidence. If I had the ability to show you everything, it would not change your mind. It would not change your heart. It would not change your attitude. And let me tell you why. He says, why is that? I said, because you're dead in your sins. Because you're dead in your transgressions. You have not the Spirit of God nor the ability to discern spiritual matters. You are dead, just as I was dead 15, 16 years ago. It doesn't matter what I say to you. It doesn't matter if I show you this or point a half dome. It makes no difference. And I said this too because you're dead in your sin, because you do not believe. Have you ever considered that you are actually not refuting God and it might be the other way around? It's not even meant to be a burn. It's what Scripture teaches. You don't believe because God has not enabled you to. Don't walk around with your chest puffed up acting like a tough guy. Get on your stinking hands and knees and beg him for mercy and plead with him that you're not among the reprobate. This is a different strategy with atheists. Quit feeding them fuel for their fire and giving them ammo by pointing to all things. Start telling them their real spiritual condition and tell them that if God does not turn you, because you're not going to turn yourself because they think they can turn it on and off, you're going to perish. This is God's responsibility. I'll tell you what, Ed started a pretty interesting conversation. Usually they cuss me out and take off. Then all of a sudden this guy's asking me all sorts of stuff. Then after day two, I had to block him. I started saying, well, God kills everyone and all this, and I was like, I'm out of here. You started started to hear, and and then just, you know, the the devil comes and the seed and all that stuff, and okay, I'm out. Somebody else can minister to you. I'm never going to convert you. The Holy Spirit does that. Really, a person's unbelief and rebellion against God proves that God has left them in their sin. Maybe for that moment, maybe for an eternity. So don't walk around thinking, look what I did. Get on your hands and knees and plead for mercy and pray that you are not among those whom God is not going to save. It's a different strategy. Doesn't sound very pleasant or nice, but you can't be nice. No evidence will turn them. Jesus has performed endless miracles for these people. Were they turned? No. No, they were not. So I blocked the dude because he was saying nasty stuff, and I don't, I don't tolerate blasphemy. Now, Jesus knew, Jesus understood that some kind of an apologetic argument for where he had come from, it would only serve to further harden their hearts. So what does he do? He rebukes them instead. Because I understood this now and read this, I kind of tried to do the same thing with the atheist the other day. Of course, I'm not Jesus, so I got nowhere. But I thought, well, this is the Lord's method he's using. Maybe we should turn away from the whole evidence thing. I don't know. Unless we should measure every and assess every scenario and try to you know, use the Scripture then. But anyways, his rebuke was not meant to just tear down or blow them out or turn them away. Per se, it was meant to get their attention. Right? If you're complaining and grumbling and somebody says, stop complaining, you're going to... So he's trying to snap them back to him. So that he can continue to present the gospel to them. The gospel that he's preaching here is the gospel of his life, death, burial, and resurrection. But he's put it in the form of the bread of life, the one who gives eternal life. There's the gospel. And I had a thought. Jesus is omniscient; he knows all things and everything, and he's part of the plan of God and designed everything, and he's sovereign in all of that. Jesus could go into a room and preach the gospel to an entire room filled with people he knows will never be saved. Aren't you glad you don't know who the elect are? Would you go into a room and preach to a bunch of people that are reprobate and will never be saved? You'd probably say, why would I bother? Jesus, well, Jesus seemed to do that. I thought, well, okay, so we see the end result at the end of this chapter and a whole bunch of people leave him, so it didn't produce what we would want to see it produce, Is it true that it didn't produce what we... Were not His true disciples there? Did not His true disciples get to hear about how He's the bread of life and the only one that can satisfy? God's Word has a purpose no matter who it's going out to. But I thought about that. Jesus could preach in front of people whom He knew would never submit. And yet He faithfully preached the Word of God, didn't He? I'm so glad we don't have that knowledge. We probably would not do ministry which is really sad. We don't know who is going to be saved and who is not going to be saved. And when we meet somebody who loves Jesus, we say, wow, you look like the real thing. I love you. Then about two months later, you don't look like the real thing anymore. I still love you, but it's really weird. It's just not in our power to know. And Jesus faithfully preached, corrected them, brought them back to His point. He's the bread of life. He's the one that gives eternal life. And the next verse, Jesus builds on what He said back in 37a. Now, look down at 44. He says this. This is just such a marvelous statement that has been so twisted by evangelicals. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And then He says, and I will raise him up on the last day. What a phenomenal statement. So in 37a, back there, just a few verses before this, Jesus says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. When we combine 37a with 44, which is exactly what we're supposed to do, mind you, what do we end up with? Those whom the Father has given to me, He draws to me. And what what else does He say? And I will raise them up on the last day. Now there are three major doctrines represented in this combination of verses. First, we see predestination. We talked about it last Sunday. The Father predestined in eternity past to give Jesus a people of His own. And the Bible refers to them in a number of ways. They're the chosen ones, the elect. True Israel, the church, etc. So we see predestination again in this combination, right? They, they are the ones whom the Father gives to Jesus, though they are the ones whom the Father draws to Jesus. There's predestination. Secondly, we see calling, and we touched on this a little bit last week. Here, Jesus refers to the calling, the divine calling of God, as draws. D-R-A-W-S. <laughs> calling and draws mean the same thing, they are synonymous. When God draws a man, He is calling a man, and vice versa. This calling is is made, or this drawing is made through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and and possesses that person uh, whom God predestined to give to Jesus. And what does He do? He regenerates them, gives them a new heart, and He he imparts or implants the gifts of repentance and faith. And, And then He calls them to go to Jesus, to run to Jesus for salvation. That's the calling. This calling is not an appeal, like some say. It is not a mere invitation It is effectual. You've heard me use the the phrase effectual call or efficacious call. It is effectual, which means it takes effect. Why? Because it is accompanied by God's omnipotent power. And this calling is not refutable, as some say. It will not, under any circumstances, be turned down or rejected by the one who is being called. It's not like you're getting called on a phone and decide not to answer, right? You look at your iPhone. Oh, it's him. Voicemail. Oh, it's Pastor Phil again. Voicemail. Or me. Oh, it's... (laughs) Never mind. That's terrible. (laughs) Don't say that. These are your people. They're not my people. They're your people. This calling is, it is not refutable. It's not like God calls you and offers you something and you say, nah. It's not refutable. It's actually irresistible. Because the person who is being called has just been regenerated, given a new heart and new attitude, new disposition toward God. They want to come to Jesus for salvation like never before. They now love Jesus. Even though their love is small, they're like, wow, I'm, I'm attracted to Jesus. I, I want Jesus. I, w- I want to know Jesus. I, I've heard His name and I've heard about Him, but now I, I kind of see Him different and I understand Him different and I, and I want to know Him. He becomes attractive. That's the effectual call or the drawing. Third, we see resurrection. Jesus put it like this, I will raise Him up on the last day. Resurrection is the final thrust or component of our salvation, which will occur when Jesus returns, the second advent. So in this combination of verses, we see three massive, huge, major doctrines represented, right? Predestination, calling, and resurrection. Think of it like this. Those whom the Father gave to Jesus will be drawn to Jesus, called, and raised by Jesus, resurrected at His return. How is this possible? Predestination. God predetermined it. Paul summarized what we're talking about and looking at here in Romans 8.30 like this. For those whom God predestined, He also called, justified, and glorified. And this is expressed. What I'm talking about here is expressed in many places, not just here in John 6. Now, we've got to deal with something here for a moment. Supporters of the West or Wesleyan doctrine called prevenient grace use verse 44 to support their claims. They say that God bestowed His grace on all people equally and He now draws all people to Jesus for salvation. But he leaves the decision to us. That's provenient grace. And guess what? That's the prevailing view in the church today. That God doesn't interfere with man's will. He kind of leaves him as he is, but somehow he's supernaturally enabled all to accept, to come to and accept or reject Jesus. That is the prevailing predominant view in American evangelicalism, unfortunately. Think of prevenient grace like this. It is an enablement to come to Jesus and either accept or reject Him. And they use verse 44 to to argue this idea, this theology. But verse 44 does not support prevenient grace. It actually totally contradicts it. In one verse, which... People have built a straw man argument for, for humanism. The same verse destroys the idea, annihilates it. And this is why I always tell you it's so important that you study and read Scripture in context. You must understand the who, what, where, when, and why before you start running around with theology because you're probably going to land somewhere wrong. The prevenient grace folks, which I said is the popular view here in, in our country with Christians, they teach that draws him in 44a means the Father draws all people to Jesus. I'm not talking about every type and every ethnicity. I'm talking about literally all men, women, and children of all time. All of them, because of prevenient grace, the Father draws every single person to Jesus. That's what they say. But Jesus said in 44b, He will raise. Those up who have been drawn to Him. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. If draws Him refers to all people, this means that Jesus is going to raise all people to eternal life. This is universalism. The belief that God saves all people and that hell either doesn't exist or isn't eternal Right? If God is going to save all people of Jesus, if God draws all people to Jesus, and that's the prevenient grace view, but then Jesus says, I'm going to raise up all who are drawn to me, we've got universal salvation. Everyone is going to be saved. Are there not people in hell now as I speak? What about them? I guess they didn't make the cut. But wait a minute, he draws all people to them. And Jesus has to raise them all up. No. So what happens is when you press people on this and they start modifying hell. They start saying, well, or they try to modify their crazy interpretation. They try to modify it, make it sound like something else that it is. But I'm telling you, you cannot say, verse 44, you cannot say that God literally draws all people. Because if you say that, then they all have to be raised. Because Jesus said, I'm going to raise all that are drawn to me. You understand where I'm going with this. The verse refutes the bad theology. And, and Jonathan Edwards, actually in the 1750s, had to deal with some of this stuff. And he had people that were trying, because they believed in this drawing and all this, this Arminian Wesleyan view, they were denying hell, or they were de- denying the eternality of hell, that it's forever and ever and ever. And here's how he responded in, in just this proverbial, simplistic statement If hell isn't eternal, neither is heaven. Oh, hold on a second. You can't say that. Wait a minute. You understand they're polar opposites. One is forever, the other is forever. Those who are in Jesus get forever life. Those who are not get forever eternal damnation. You can't have a partial hell or a non-existent hell and a full-time eternal heaven. They're exa- they have exactly the same kind of scope. He, his argument is great. If hell isn't eternal, neither is heaven. Well, hold on a second. That doesn't sound right. Neither does everything else you've been arguing for. The Bible does not support universalism. Nowhere does it teach that all people will be saved or that hell will be cut short and people will be taken out of hell and saved like Rob Bell preaches. It doesn't teach anything like that. And guess what? It doesn't support prevenient grace either. The Father does not draw all people to Jesus. He draws those whom He gave to Jesus to Jesus. And guess what? All whom He gave to Jesus in eternity past will be drawn to Jesus called to Jesus, saved by Jesus, resurrected by Jesus? This is the logic of Scripture. Don't play with it. Accept it. I know it's tough because it means people aren't going to be saved. But guess what? People don't want to be saved. They love their sin. They hate God. The Bible does not teach prevenient grace. It does not teach universalism, not even come close to it. What does it actually teach? Election, predestination, calling, calling regeneration, faith, repentance, justification, adoption, sanctification, glorification, resurrection. Those things pertain to salvation. It doesn't teach prevenient grace. Guess what else it teaches? Hell is a real place and the eternal destination of those who do not come to Jesus and believe. It's all there in scripture. Now the most popular supporter of prevenient grace is the founder of methodism, John Wesley. He is the one that actually developed from Scripture, in his opinion, the doctrine of prevenient grace. It came from him. He's a Wesley. Wesleyan thought comes from Wesley, the Wesley brothers. He developed the doctrine. But guess what? He did not support universalism, nor did he reject any of the doctrines of hell. I would say to him today, how can he have it both ways? And today, with technology and the ability to look at the Word of God the way we can with the resources, you'd probably say, I was wrong. I'll tell you what, his interpretation of John 644 may have been off, but he was right about many other things. He's a brother, powerful preacher. One of his contemporaries, George Whitfield, who's a hero of mine, another phenomenal preacher of that era, he had the correct view of 644, God's sovereignty in salvation all the way through. These two. Giants of the 16th century varied from one another in their theologies that pertained to salvation, but they still respected and honored each other the best they could. One day, someone asked Whitfield if he would see Wesley in heaven. literally, somebody came up to him and tugged on his shirt maybe after he preached and said, do you think you're going to see John Wesley in heaven? And I think the person thought that Wesley's theology was just too far off, and it really wasn't. Wesley was said to be within a hair's breadth of a Calvinist, five-point Calvinist. So, but, anyways, this person thinks that, okay, so I know Wesley's theology's off. Maybe he's not going to go to heaven. Let's ask the expert here if he thinks he's going to see Wesley in heaven. And he thought that Whitfield would say, No, I'm not going to see him there. And Whitfield replied, No, I will not see him in heaven. What? He said this. John Wesley will be so close to the throne of grace, and I will be way in the back, unable to see him. (laughs) Think about that. This is a man who honored the other man who had a different view of the way that God saves, but the man loved Jesus and preached Jesus, and God used him mightily. And Whitfield's opinion of him was, yeah, he's going to be there, but I won't see him because I'll be way in the back. (laughs) That's just awesome. Jesus points to the, God's sovereignty and salvation in verse 44. Why? To make clear to the disbelieving Jews that are there everywhere that they were in no way frustrating God's plan of salvation through their unbelief. He's already done this earlier. Now look at 45. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. What a statement! Here Jesus describes how the Holy Spirit calls the elect, those whom God predestined to give to Jesus. He he describes how the Holy Spirit calls them to Himself through the gospel. We see three things here, but before we look at them, focus on 45a. Jesus tells us that the calling of the elect was prophesied in Isaiah 54, 13. It says, all your children shall be taught by the Lord and great shall be the peace of your children. Now, children here does not refer to humanity in general, like all people are God's children. It doesn't have any kind of general application there at all. It refers to those whom the Father predestined unto adoption as His sons and daughters in Christ Jesus, the elect. Ephesians 1, 5. You see, God predestined for the elect to be called to Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the ministry of His Word. Now let's look actually at how the Holy Spirit calls the elect to Jesus through the gospel. We see three things, as I mentioned. Number one, the Holy Spirit teaches them the gospel. Verse 45b, it says, they will all be taught by God. Who's the all? All the elect, all people? No, all the elect, all who have been who have been chosen by God, given to the Son, and drawn to Jesus. They will all be taught the gospel. Nobody gets to heaven, nobody gets to Jesus apart from the person and work of Jesus. You must be taught the gospel, hear the gospel, believe the gospel. But here it's simply put, they will all be taught by God. Those whom He predestined, they will be taught by God. Those whom the Father draws, they will be taught by God. They will be taught the gospel by who's the teacher? The Holy Spirit. Number two, the Holy Spirit opens their ears to the gospel. And some would call this the doctrine of illumination, like where they not only hear the words, but they actually hear the meaning, and it has this power in it, and it comes and opens their their minds to what's being said. He expresses this in 45C, everyone who has heard. There's the opening of the ears, part of, of illumination, bringing someone to understanding, and the final thrust here is, 45-D, the Holy Spirit opens their minds to the gospel, right? They're taught by Him, uh, their ears are open, and then their minds are opened to the gospel by the Spirit. 45-D, and learned from the Father. There's the full thrust of illumination. That The, Spirit, the, the gospel is being preached to the person whom God has predestined. And he hears, he hears the gospel, but it comes with divine instruction and teaching in an effectual way. And then his ears are open to it. He starts to really comprehend and understand it. And then his mind is open to it too. And that's where that fuller understanding comes and an empowerment to respond to it. That's what he's talking about here. All of this is packed into the divine calling of God to the elect. And what does it result in? They're taught, they, they hear, and their minds are opened and changed. What does it result in? 45E, they come to me. They come to Jesus. Do you see it? It's all there. That is the calling. That is the drawing that he's just declared. Those who are drawn to Jesus are done so through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, through the teaching of the gospel, through the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit. Their ears and minds are open to it. And within all of that, that The gifts of repentance and faith come packed into that and the person begins to turn from their sin toward Jesus. Now they want to live for Jesus and they believe in Him for their salvation. Man, I was trusting in what I was doing. I was trusting in Allah. I was trusting in Buddha. I was, I was trusting in karma. I was trusting in my good deeds. And I realize now for the first time, it's all Jesus. It's all Jesus. And guess what? You to him, not from him. Oh, I don't want that. Your soul has just received what it has been looking for and searching for your whole life. Finally, the bread of life has, has nourished and met the soul's need. It's all packed into the calling. Are you hearing what the Lord is saying to you today? Through his word. Now, when Jesus says this, something else happens here among the crowd. His opposition, from time to time, would question his authority to speak on these matters. And I think that's what was happening here. We don't, we don't see if they were asking questions. We, we, don't, we, don't, we don't even see them at all at this point. Jesus just keeps preaching. But I think something was going on here, and that's why we have 46 the way we do. Because they did question his authority, like... There were times where they would say, well, you know, who gave you the right to say what you're saying and to talk about the Father this way and all of that? And, of course, he would always respond, I came from the Father. And that's exactly what happens here. This next verse seems to indicate that they were either thinking, what gives him the right to say these things? Where did he get his authority from? Or that they were verbalizing it. We don't know. 46, he says, not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He's speaking of himself. He has seen the Father. Jesus made clear that He has the authority to speak about the Father and to to speak about the Father's plan of salvation, which He is so incredibly involved in. He he, he tells them, I've got the authority to speak on such matters because I have been sent by the Father. And you think about that. No other person has ever come from heaven to earth like Jesus. People go up to heaven all the time, don't they? The elect they're saved. They go into glory when they breathe their last breath. This happens. People go up all the time. But people do not first exist in heaven and then come down to earth to live their lives. No one's ever done that but Jesus. Only Jesus has done that. Jesus existed in heaven before he came to earth. John has been arguing this since the beginning of his gospel Jesus existed before the heavens and the earth were created. Jesus has always existed. Jesus is the eternal Word of God, right? John 1.1. 1, 1. Verse 46 is nothing less than a statement about His deity. Jesus has authority to speak about the Father and the plan of salvation because He is from heaven, yes, but bigger than that, because He is God the Son and the Son of God. I speak with the authority that was given to me by the Father, but I speak on my own authority because I am God. That's what he's saying. You remember those uh, corny investment commercials from the late 70s and into the 80s? When E.F. Hutton speaks, people listen. Remember that? Anyone remember that? Seriously. Some of you are like, dude, you're dumb because I was born like four years ago. You remember that? The TV was saturated with these back then, and yeah, I watched way too much TV, but I remember when E.F. Hutton speaks, people listen. Forget about E.F. Hutton. When Jesus speaks, people better listen. Why? Because he speaks with divine authority, doesn't he? Amen? That is Jesus' point right here. They're not taking him serious. They're not yielding to him. They're not receiving his teaching they're not believing his testimony nothing is changing and maybe they're questioning in their minds or verbally listen to what he's saying he's from mary and joseph he does not have authority to teach on such matters in fact he didn't even go to princeton with me the jewish princeton i don't know where it comes from i need to stop this is their mindset he came from a carpenter's house what the heck does he know He knows everything. In verses 47 through 49, Jesus repeats verse 40 and then juxtaposes, contrasts the bread of life with the manna in the wilderness. Look at 47 through 49. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. What do we notice at the beginning of the sentence? The double truly, truly. What does this signify? What does it signify? That Jesus is about to say something doubly important, right? Super important. And notice what he says next. Whoever believes has eternal life. That's the doubly important thing he's saying. You believe in me, you have eternal life. Despite their rejection of him and grumbling, Jesus still invites them to believe in him and have eternal life. That's what he's doing. You know, they're totally lock-hard, rebellion, hardened hearts and all that, but he still invites them. Come to me. If you come to me, you'll have eternal life. I know you're talking smack about me in the corner. But if you come to me, I love how Jesus boldly proclaimed the sovereignty of God and salvation and boldly called for people to come to him and believe in him. That's what we're to do. We're to believe in the sovereignty of God, that that people are only saved through Him and by Him, and He draws them and does all of it. But at the same time, you're supposed to preach in such a way where you're inviting and and even commanding, in a sense, in love, come to Jesus and believe. It's not true what they say of us Calvinists, that we don't believe in evangelism. We do. We understand that the only way the elect come to Jesus is through the gospel. So we preach the gospel like maniacs, right? Right? We understand that God has not only ordained the end result, but everything in between, the preaching of the gospel, the calling, regeneration, justification, adoption. We get it. We preach. And God is faithful. He brings His people to Jesus. I think He set an example for us to follow here. Boldly proclaim the sovereignty of God to people and boldly call for them to come to Jesus and believe in Him and know that Jesus will not turn any away. Remember that? I will not cast them out. Those whom the Father brings to me, I will not cast them out. If somebody comes to Jesus and they want faith and they want to believe in Him and they want salvation because the Father gave them to Jesus, and you know what else you have to do? Leave the results in God's hands. Don't try to manipulate or get clever. Just trust that the Holy Spirit is at work and He will accomplish all of the purposes, and He will. In verse 48, Jesus repeats 35a, I am the bread of life. He then contrasts the bread of life himself with the bread of heaven, manna. The manna was also divinely given and came down from heaven, but it did not impart eternal life. Had no ability to do that. Jesus gives a metaphorical example to illustrate the major difference between the bread of life and manna. The descendants of the Jews that were in that room, whom Jesus called your fathers, ate the manna in the wilderness, but they died. They died. They died. Here is the contrast. The person who partakes of the bread of life, Jesus, by faith, will have eternal life and never die. There's the contrast. This is what Jesus is preaching. And I tell you what, He really hammers away at this point in our last set of verses, 50 and 51. Look at them. This is the bread that comes down from heaven. So that one may eat of it and not die, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give and, and, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus literally points to himself and says, "I am the bread that came down from heaven. If a person partakes of me, he or she will never die." And then in verse 52 here, we see the third major title, the living bread. While still pointing to himself, he tells the crowd, if you eat this bread here, right here, if you eat this bread, you will live forever. Why? Because I am the living bread. I am the bread in the flesh, so to speak. Now, was he really talking about himself as a loaf of bread? No. Was he speaking literally here that you must, you know, eat my flesh and all that? Was he telling them to eat his body? Was he promoting cannibalism like some think he was? Maybe some in the crowd thought that. I'll tell you, many things were permissible in Jesus' day. There was some crazy stuff going on, but cannibalism was not one of the approved things. Was he establishing the Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation, you know, where the the bread and, and wine are turned into the literal body of Jesus through the ceremony? Is that what he's... Preaching here? Establishing? No, none of those things. He's not saying you got to eat my flesh, take off an arm, have a drumstick. He's not establishing transubstantiation. None of that. What did Jesus say in verse 35? We partake of Him by what? Coming to Him. Repentance. And by believing in Him. Faith. That's what He means. When we come to Jesus and, and believe in Jesus, we will receive eternal life. Or as Jesus put it in the middle of 52, live forever. Lastly, in the second half of verse 52, Jesus points to the cross. Ah, oh, man. As the bread of God, bread of life, and living bread, Jesus will go to the cross And sacrifice His flesh, His life for the world. Sinners from every tribe and tongue. He goes to make this sacrifice, His literal death, the destruction of His flesh, so that He can secure for those whom the Father gave to Him. So He can secure for them, for the elect, for those people, all that is necessary for eternal life in accordance with, with God's plan of salvation. Closing. The synagogue discourse has made many, many things clear so far, and I, I just want to focus on the four that we've kind of been highlighting. Number one Jesus, the bread of God, is God's only supply for our salvation, He's it. There is salvation in no other name under heaven among men but Jesus. Get that into your mind. You're not going to get saved through what you're doing, through good deeds, through some other religion, through goodness. God has said plainly of those who are not in Jesus, there is nothing good about us. doesn't mean that we disobey all the laws or mistreat our families or any of that. In spiritual categories, there's no good. We are dead. Jesus, the bread of God, is God's only supply for our salvation. He is, the, he is the true manna, the true bread. The Father sent His only begotten Son as our bread for our salvation. Number two, Jesus, the bread of life, is literally the only one who can save us. He's not just the supply, He's the Savior. He's the only one who can save us. There is no other way to be saved. There is no other way to experience eternal life but through Jesus. That's it. People don't believe that today, but it's it. Number three, Jesus, the living bread, is the only one who can satisfy and sustain us spiritually. He is the bread that, once ingested, satisfies the soul for all eternity, fixes the soul's disposition and attitude, quenches the spiritual hunger. He's the only one that can take us from grace to glory. He's it, the living bread. And for to partake of Jesus, the bread of God, bread of life and living bread, we must come to Him, repent, and believe in Him, faith. That's how we receive all that Jesus is and all of His blessings. My question is, the Father drawing or calling you to Jesus through the gospel this morning, through regeneration, through the Holy Spirit, come to Him now. Run to Him. He will not cast you out. For those who have already come to Jesus and believed in Him... Know that it was the Father who drew you to Jesus in accordance with His predestined plan. It's so sad today that so many Christians, and yeah, there's some great brothers and sisters out there, they really believe that they are the ones who got themselves saved through the decision they made or through their coming to Jesus, and they have no concept or willingness to even entertain the idea that they are the Father's eternal love gift to Jesus and that they got to Jesus because of the Father. I don't understand why people won't accept that, the people of God. I don't understand why any saint would reject the idea of him or her being chosen and predestined. If that is you, you are missing out. You are missing out on on a, a fuller idea, expression, understanding of the love of God. As I said last week, you are a gift of the Father's to the Son. You have an incredible value. It was expressed through Jesus going and securing for you at the cross the reality and salvation that you could be in Him and come to Him and all of that and enjoy Him. We must start to get into our minds. We must begin to believe what we see in the Scripture. It is right here. It cannot be refuted. We try and we attempt because it leaves a bad taste. I don't understand why, but it does. But guess what? Your unbelief in what God has firmly fixed and declared changes not the reality of it. We, in a way, if we don't believe what the Scripture clearly teaches, we need to repent And come to Jesus wholeheartedly and apologize for holding a view that Scripture does not support. And watch what happens in your life. Your eternal security and sense of those things will will grow. You'll become more bold in your proclaiming of the gospel. You will walk in, in more of the power of God because you'll realize the love that He has for you. His love is so, so tremendous and so great. We didn't get to Jesus in our own strength or power according to our own will. We got there because of the Father. And I say, because of that, because salvation truly is all of God, He should get all the glory for it. Amen? He deserves it. And when you share the gospel, saints, with those around you, people around you, use Jesus' example. Boldly proclaim the sovereignty of God in salvation. It's okay. Talk about what God has done. Let people marvel at that or turn away from it, but proclaim it. But also boldly call for them to come to Jesus and believe in Him. It's not a contradiction. There's no contradictions here. God has ordained the end and the middle. And remember to leave the results in God's hands. Amen.